Welcome to No Time to Waste, the podcast that inspires and motivates us to maximize our moments. I'm your host, Allison Haddon. I'm battling terminal cancer, but I'm focused on living my best life as my best self every day. Join me as I chat with resilient adventurers, seekers, trailblazers, and exceptionally good humans as we explore what it means to live fully because there's no time to waste for all of us. Okay, I'll be honest. I hadn't heard of Greg McEwen before his publicist introduced him to me. Fun fact, Greg is the only guest pitched to me so far that I actually said, hmm, I don't know him, but yeah, I think I'd like to talk to this guy. Um, our conversation was just so not what I expected. Yes, we hit on his new book, which is called Effortless, Making It Easier to Do What Matters Most, which is a follow-up to his first New York Times bestseller, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. And we did touch on his What's Essential podcast, where Greg talks to a wide range of guests about prioritizing what matters most in life. All very no time to waste. Um, but what he and I got into was a much more personal story of Greg's own family struggles as they navigated a scary road over the last two years with their daughter and a mysterious brain condition that doctors had no answers for. The fear, the uncertainty, the lack of insight from the medical teams, all of it was so much to bear. So Greg knows firsthand how valuable time is and now, with his daughter on a better path, how to maximize every moment. We talked about how to support others who are going through stuff by not trying to fix things or pitch solutions, which is just so much easier said than done, but by just being there for the person, by really listening, and how Greg's Mormon faith was the bedrock through all of his life's challenges. It was not the heady academic discussion I was prepared for. It was so much more. And by so much more, I mean so much better. <laughs> it's Greg McEwen for No Time to Waste. Does, does everyone spell your name wrong or uh, pronounce your name wrong? I, everyone asks and 90% of the time they have it wrong. McEwen. I just say it. McEwen. You have it. Just to let everyone know... Greg McEwen, really, the only reason why he's on the podcast is because I've been trying to fill my um, uh, British accent quota, and now we're good. Um, I've been trying to find the, the right, Jamila Jamil, I was like, maybe she would be great. And then I was like, I think, oh, Greg, Greg, we can check the box off. My English accent's my saving grace, uh, my... My wife, Anna, tells me that I'm just one accent short of being kicked out. So I've got to keep it, keep it going strong. <laughs> Despite the fact that you've now lived in America for how many years? 20 plus years now. We're just coming up to our 21st anniversary, in fact. Wow. Um, so I suppose that must be about 22 years that I've lived here now. I just feel like you're now holding on to the accent just for the perks. <laughs> That's, I mean, this is this is what it is yeah it is what it, it is what it is now as i uh i i mentioned in the intro um you are you're a pretty exceptional brit you uh finished your first book which was essentialism mm. um and then um this year right you came yes. out with your second book um which effortless was effortless basically make it easier to do what matters most and yeah 
you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yes. Um, you, you don't write a book on this subject if life is easy. If life is easy, you don't need a book on effortless. <laughs> uh, I wrote the book because life is hard in a hundred ways for almost everybody and almost all the time. So the challenges that to that innate hardship and challenge, we sometimes do things that make it even harder still and even harder than it needs to be. And the cost of that is quite significant because it means that people can burn out before having achieved the really essential mission of their life. Mm. So the cost is significant. It's, it's important. It's mm. not just a nice to have. If you can figure out an easier way to do life, a lighter way to do life, then you have a better chance to be able to complete the mission that we came here to do. I mean, that's why I wrote the book. Um, that's the, the context for it. And it happens to be uh, relevant, I think, you know, uh, broadly right now because of the last year and a half through the pandemic. Uh, but of course, it's, uh, it's really relevant for uh, this conversation that you and I uh, are having today. Yeah. Um, I did read the book. Um, it was way easier to digest than I had expected. Mm. Um, I'd recommend anyone pick it up. You'll uh, blow through it in a day or so, depending on how much time you have. Um, but it was really easy to pick up and put down. Um, it read just, you know, a lot smoother than a lot of other um you know, uh, impactful, but headier, longer books. Um, so that was nice. Well, yeah, the goal, the goal was, it was, there was an irony that we didn't want to, to experience of having a book called effortless that was really exhausting and difficult to read. Yeah. <laughs> Although you could have, you could have. And it's interesting, you know, I, uh, was taking my dog Birdie uh, on a walk and was wanted to go out for about an hour and um, found, or I guess had found, but saved um, your uh, Tim Ferriss interview. In that conversation, it was not, uh, it was surprising um, because the conversation you got into, you got into with Tim was a, uh, about sort of the origins, you know, you just talked about how we're all going through hard things, mm. right? Um, yeah. If if life wasn't hard, or if you hadn't in in ran into challenges to navigate, you wouldn't need to write the book. That's and right. in that conversation with Tim, you shared um, about your hard time, at least um, the one that that sort of prompted you to just to put pen to paper and, and write the book. Yeah, that's right. I, I would love to have you share that story uh, of Eve with us. Yes, I, I'm very happy to do that. Um, it feels really appropriate. Um, we'd moved as a family to um, quite an idyllic area. Uh, in fact, a few years ago, it was um, built in the 1950s, everybody... <clears throat> The whole world moved on and nobody told anybody here. 
Mm-hmm. So you have these white picket fences everywhere and horseways and um, horse and what? Horseways, you know, like what the heck is that? Well, you know, like horse paths. Horse paths. Everybody has horses here. Okay, got it. Everyone has horses. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm allowed to like impersonate you a little bit, right? It, it, it comes with the territory. All right. I'm sorry. Keep going. I won't interrupt you. No, not at all. You're welcome to. And um, and so the children, I have four children now, and mm-hmm. they were just thriving here. Uh, you know, they're always out with our happy dog running around. They're on the trampoline. They're, they're swimming. They're, uh, they're horse riding. And Eve especially seemed to thrive. She loved being out in nature. She was always, you know, the most physically active perhaps of our children. She's climbing trees whenever she can. She's barefoot. She's naming our chickens. Um, yes, we have chickens. Uh, and and that's how it all was, this just, just very uh, engaging personality, uh, funny. She can't stay cross, uh, even if she tries to, uh, until she turned 14. And when she turned 14, I mean, she just slowed down a bit, you know, so she took a long time to do her chores. Uh, she was, she sort of answers instead of this just, you know, vivacious flow of words. Uh, it's just be one word answers. It became a little physically awkward. And we thought, well, pretty age appropriate behavior, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone goes through their own cycle. Uh, but as it turns out, it was much. Uh, it was more serious than that. Um, um, it, it turned out to be a neurological disease of some kind that was undiagnosed, um, and and there was this quite sudden freefall in capability. What was at first just sort of seemed a little awkward, a little slower, uh, turned into sort of a Parkinson, a Parkinson type behavior. So. It's like maybe takes fully two minutes to write your own name, which is incredibly slow, right? If you try to write that slowly, you, you pretty much can't. Um, it took hours to eat a meal. Uh, personality just completely changed. It became monotone. Uh, and then after a massive grand mal seizure, uh, she was hospitalized. And through all of this, um, we were meeting with neurologists, one of whom I remember 35 years in his, you know, specialist in his field, just shrugged his shoulders because every test came back within the normal range. So nobody knows what's happening and she's fast, you know, falling into you know, what would have been a coma, uh, and, and dying. So yeah, let's, let's just say, uh, that is the stuff that agony can be made of, um, you know, your your daughter, once so full of light, is suddenly you know, just just the light almost goes out altogether. And you have no answers at this point. And we have no answers. And so what became really clear, what was revelatory in this moment, was that there were two paths we could take to deal with it. Uh, what I would now call option one, the heavier path. Uh, option two, the lighter path. Uh, now, if you if you had two gates marked heavier, lighter, you, maybe you would think, well, just take the lighter path. But actually, we felt the heavier path was the one that seemed more 
compelling because this is so important. It, we must take the exhausting path to deal with it. Of course, it must require total self-sacrifice. Uh, we should be up all night long. We should focus on this and nothing else. Uh, we should every, you know, in, well-intended email you receive from anyone saying, well, maybe she has this condition and maybe she has that condition. And, you know, you could study all the time trying to go down rabbit holes. And most of these are uh, really horrific diagnosis that people are sending to you. And, 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 and the, Fortunately, we didn't take that path because the risk of having, if we had, is that you get consumed body and soul and then you don't have anything with which to help the problem at hand. Like, you know, it's instead of saying, this is so important, we must burn ourselves out. You, know, give, you say, this is so important, we need to find a sustainable way to do this. We need to find a way that can lighten it so that we don't get full, pulled into just total anxiety, depression, breaks your marriage, breaks your family culture type experience. And you and your wife talked about that in like in real time as you're in it? Yeah, we, we, we were talking all the time about all of this, as you can imagine. Um, and, and one of the things that I felt I'd felt sort of prompted to do uh, was to read an article. I'd read it years ago, um, but it sort of came back to my mind. It's an article by Gordon B. Hinckley. Uh, I mentioned it with Tim Ferriss, and um, it's an article about cultivating an, an attitude of happiness and optimism, something like that. I should know because, because I, I listened to it. I had a recording of it, and I listened to it every day for almost every day for the next four months through this free fall of her capabilities with no, you know, zero diagnosis. And in that, there's all sorts of good things in that, things that that sort of came to represent this lighter path. You know, they, don't focus on the things you can't control. Be grateful. Develop an, an attitude of, of, of thanksgiving in all things. Uh, we tend to think we ought to be thankful for the good things, and of course we should, but to be thankful in the hard things and the bad things helps suddenly to lighten things. And we, you know, the kinds of things that we chose to do, and it was was definitely intentional, was, okay, well, first of all, we're not going to give up on the good things we have going, right? So we're still going to eat together and we're going to have our rituals where we where we toast each other at, at, at these and celebrate every good possible thing. We're going to be deliberately... Um, uh, what would I say? It's not quite the right word, but like aggressively grateful mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, where you just go, you know, anything that's good, we're going to be thankful for that. Um, we're going to get around the piano and sing. We're going to laugh together still. We're going to go on walks together. We're not going to wait until the hard thing has passed to, to, to find a lighter way to do it. Uh, and we found that there was an, almost a magical force at play, and very quickly by doing that, it seemed just like it just lifted everything. We just there was a, a sort of energy about it, a catalytic nature about it, and and so yes, the the, the problem is still the problem. Of course, it is, and we weren't pretending it was otherwise. We weren't we weren't 
you know, we weren't spinning anything. But but suddenly it meant that instead of being full of fear, we could be, you know, you could start to discern better well what to do and what not to do. You can't do that if you're in a state of panic or suffering. And so it helped us literally get, I remember Anna sort of had this little prompting come to her, like, no, don't bother with all of these neurologists. This is the one to go with. And that sort of attunement requires a certain state to even be able to hear it. If you're so angry, you can't hear that. It's like, it's like trying to eat uh, you know, some, some jalapeno pepper and then try to be able to taste the delicacy of a grape. It's like these little promptings, they only come if you're, if you're, if you're in, a, you know, in a certain state. Now, all hardship requires a variety of emotions. I'm not trying to suggest that, that we, you know, we, we wept too you know, when the moment called for it. That was part of, you know, part of this path, of course it was. But we, we, it was through those kind of quiet, guiding, you know, force that we ended up meeting with the first neurologist of many who who actually just had had something helpful and uh, we, we he had a six-month waiting list um maybe nine months because he only met with people once a month because he was doing research and so we we're on this huge waiting list and then suddenly it just became available and so we go and meet him we're waiting for him for hours when we got there and even then i started going well you know we're where is this guy? You know, we've been here ages. And, and Anna was like, oh, no, no. Like, remember, we're going to be grateful right now because what it means is that whoever he's with, he's completely focused on them. It was fascinating. He didn't, he didn't diagnose in order to treat. He treated, treated to, diagnose. to diagnose. Yes. I, yep. And that was the beginning of, of, uh, of her, you know, her first round of recovery. Uh, there have been ups and downs over a two and a half year period. Uh, as of this conversation, she is in, she is herself again. She's thriving again. She's, I mean, she, she, she runs, she's back at rock climbing again. Uh, she's just got back from a, a two week um, sort of service experience in, in, in Mexico that's helping to build a, a school. I mean, she's just, you know, like. She's herself. She's herself again. Um, what I learned I mean, of course, there's many, many things you learn, but what I have learned in a, that to me is incredibly profound, simple insight is that in every now, in every new moment, we have a choice, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the past, no matter what the pain, no matter what the problem, you have a choice in this moment to take a heavier path or to choose a lighter path. And, and that choice is, is, is to, to me, it's the most important thing. It might be the most important thing in life because that, that, that we only really ever have the now. And what we do with it, what we do with this moment, what do we do next, uh, is, uh, shapes, you know, shapes the experience that, that is life. Well, first of all, thank you for being willing to be that open and vulnerable um, in sharing basically not only a highly personal story, but one filled with, I'm sure, a ton of trauma and fear and scary 
scary thoughts. Um, I can relate to, um, and you talked a lot more with Tim about kind of the, the deterioration that you were noticing in your daughter. Um, I can relate to that because a year ago, um, I started to have cognitive processing challenges and I had word finding issues and you talked about, you know, it taking 45 seconds for her to, um, write the last three, uh, letters in her name. And, uh, let's just say in the course of six weeks, my partner says that I went from being a steak knife to a butter knife to a spoon mentally. Um, And by the time I went in for a brain CT, which was the first brain scan I had ever had, and they found this brain tumor the size of a lemon in the frontal lobe, um, by that point, I couldn't communicate. I couldn't remember anything. Um, Since it was COVID, I wasn't able to have people in the hospital. So I had to write my partner's cell phone number on my arm because I couldn't, I couldn't remember. The only reason they allowed her back, which violated the COVID protocol of no guests for anyone, was because I couldn't communicate my medical history. Um, so I know it, it, it almost like bowled me over yesterday as I'm walking and I was hearing you describe um, her uh, brain functioning and and how she was essentially unable to communicate. Um, you, you, you you understood that at a completely different level, yeah, because you had l- actually lived it. Correct. You know, life life is full of this, right? It is full of these stories, even if these are more dramatic than than the experiences someone's dealing with right as they're listening to this conversation. Um, I'm confident that almost everybody listening is actually dealing with something quite serious, whether it's them or whether it's a a friend or it's a family member. You know, there is plenty to go around. My best friend growing up, Sam Bridgestock, is um, uh, just um, got a second diagnosis of cancer. We don't know when he'll die but we know what he'll die from. I would say the saddest day of my life was talking to, to, to Sam when he called me up, having just received the diagnosis the second time. Uh, I don't know how to say this exactly right uh, because it's a presumptuous thing to say, but I don't think many people have a friend like Sam. I wish everybody did. Everybody ought to. We all ought to be friends like this, but it's so rare to be understood the way that he and I have always understood each other. But trying to trying to work out how, how to proceed in life, when life is so full of challenge and difficulty and pain and death and uncertainty and we could go on, and loneliness and... Uh, and, and isolation. And, and isolation. You know, every, right? I mean... <laughs> Yeah, we, we, we could keep going. We could. And in, in all of that, trying to work out, well, so, I think it's T.S. Eliot who said it, but um, that uh, 
you know, what do we live for if not to make life less difficult for each other? You know, I can't take away, you know, I can't take away your cancer. I can't take away Sam's cancer. So what do we do? Um, you know, one of the things I don't talk about it a great deal in this book, although I do, there is a, a, a section of one of the chapters where I touch upon it, but I think there's a lot more that could be written about it. Um, is that you can, you can listen deeply to not give advice, to not try and, oh yes, I get it. I know what this must be to, to, but just to live in listening, to live in understanding as he was going, especially for that sort of three or four months, uh, the, the, the most intense both right before and right afterwards. Um, you know, that, that is something we can do, right? It's something we can do. We can, we can understand, we can, we can listen. We cannot prescribe and tell people what to do and, and give them advice. Everybody wanted to do that with him. Everybody did that. Yep. And I know why they did it. They did it with Eve too. They're sending all these emails, all this stuff. And of course, they're just trying to help. So it's not, I got no, it's not a motives problem, but it's not very helpful right. because you're just already overwhelmed. Yep. Everybody's sending him. People <laughs> turning up. Well, you know what you really need to do is take this treatment, that treatment, the other treatment. You know, people coming up with all sorts of new fad things. Well, I've got this machine. Somebody literally, I've got this machine that will help you. And all you want, it's like, all you want, is what you just described in how you were able to be there for Sam. All you want is for people that you trust and you care about to have the courage to just sit with you in that space and listen. And it's so much easier said than done. It's the, it's the answer to, well, how can I be there for someone who's going through tragedy or someone who is grieving or someone who is dealing with a diagnosis or a sudden death or some other tragic event? And the answer is exactly what you just said. Be there for mm. the person. Don't run away or don't say, I didn't know what to say, so I just didn't say anything, which a lot of people mm. do, right? Because mm. um, you can always text someone, I heard the news. I'm so sorry. I want you to know that I love you and I'll continue to check on you, right? Or... I have no words. I love you very, very yeah. much, right? Um, and in an ideal situation, every person would be able to respond the way that you did with Sam and be able to say that the gift you gave him was in just being there and helping him feel seen in the way mm. that you and he have always felt through your entire friendship. That's all we want. And the funny thing is, is it sounds simple. Just be there for the person, right? Just be yourself. Mm. Just sit in the silence, right? Um, and be able to just say, I'm here. We're going to get through this and use we language so that that person doesn't feel like they're carrying the burden alone. Um, but you, I mean, that's it. That's how to be there for somebody. And it's amazing how many people just don't don't know that that's the answer they think the answer is to try and come up with a solution or fix because it's sometimes it's way it's way more comfortable 
the 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 there's a you know it's just a biblical ideal of to mourn with those that mourn and and it isn't what you know isn't really what people do you know and and we can use the mourn broadly and in a literal way in this case um but but in but just in general we so want to give people answers. Mm. It, it's, it's strange to think that the answer is not to have the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, that it really is to is to to understand. I, I do believe I have strong conviction about this that that our deepest need as humans is to be understood, mm-hmm. to be seen, to be heard, to feel heard, to be known, to feel known. That this is our deepest need, and and the the complication is that most of us have not been taught how to do that for other people or for ourselves, I suppose, to be able to advocate in such a way that we can feel understood. So this kind of a double whammy skill gap. Um, so we've been taught how to write, to read, even to some extent how to speak. But not not to listen, not to understand, not to understand without judgment, not to understand like without telling someone what to do and giving advice. Um, in fact, I just I just was trying to capture this idea today that um, it's like what people think listening is. What people think listening is is like sort of passive listening or mm-hmm. and. And that isn't even listening. So it's like people are good at bad listening. Oh, I'm really, oh, I'm like a fantastic bad listener. <laughs> like, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll fight for that podium spot because, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a fantastic passive listener where you're talking and I'm going, mm-hmm. And then literally I'm just like, is that a squirrel that's on the top branch? And then, mm-hmm, like, it doesn't matter how important the moment is. It, I, I just get, I get very distracted, and it's very hard for me to uh, to be fully present. Um, Olympic, like, Olympic, Olympic bad listeners. Olympic, yeah, yeah. It's like we're terrible. We're we're so distracted. Phones have made us, you know, even more distracted. And that's not the, the that's not. It didn't start with that. Um, there's a the the Quakers have a. I did mention this in this in, in effortless. There's a they have a a system, if that's the right word for it, a process that they create they, they created um, where if someone's going through a dilemma, facing something, they can bring in the elders, which is just a series of trusted friends um, in the community, to come in. And there's rules around the interaction, and the rules are that no one in the in the elders, no one in the in the group can give any advice at all. That's one of the first pieces, pieces, one of the first rules. Um, They can ask questions, they can restate, uh, and most of all, they listen. But here's what I think is really important, is that their intent, you know, the the intent, you know, you've got behaviors and, and and then there's the intent behind the behaviors, and the intent is to create space so that the person themselves can, I think the term they use is to listen to their life. Oh no, let your life speak. That's the phrase. So they're trying to let this person's life speak. 
They're trying to create enough safety and support and space for the person to hear themselves what the right thing is to do. And it's a, to me, it's, it's, it's a powerful thing that we can do, we can do for each other. Uh, it's, it's to try and help declutter all of that stuff that gets in the way, you know, coming back to the Eve story, it get, gets in the way of knowing what to do next. Right. You know, what's the right thing to do next? If you're full of, of noise and, and clutter, and, then you don't know what to do. Right. And if you, if you can listen and create safety, then people can, can find a better state. Yeah. I'd love to hear how your faith has sort of played a role in, you know, navigating that situation with Eve, still navigating it, right? Um, but the role that your faith has played in that, and it's a question that I ask anyone who has been... Um, you know, really public about uh, their faith from Matthew McConaughey, who's Christian to um, Rabbi Steve Leader, who's obviously Jewish. Um, and you, I know were a, you were formerly a bishop um, yeah. in the uh, Church, Church of, of Jesus Christ Latter of Latter-day Saints. Saints. Yes. Yeah, it's absolutely right. And, and it's a bit like answering that question, which is, I think, the a perfectly reasonable and lovely question to ask is uh, is a bit like saying um you know can you name all the dinners that you've had in your life <sighs> i mean it it framed it mm. i i really did come away from the experience wondering like what does somebody turn to mm -hmm. if they don't have this because my faith isn't like Oh, I just, I'm just hoping everything works out. Or I don't know. It's not like a, it's not a choice in that sense. Mm -hmm. It's an experience. I have experienced a thousand things in my life that lead me to believe. But I remember at the very deepest, worst day of the whole experience with Eve, and I just started weeping. I want her back. That was the, I want her back because she's gone. I mean, her body's here, but she's gone. And no one can speak to, to like why, uh, where she went or what to, what to do. And, you know, I sort of was in that sensation for a while, that feeling of, of, of loss. And that phrase came to my mind, just clear, short statement. She will find what is lost. And, you know, that was like something that we held on to, something I held on to through this journey was that answer. I mean, I felt that that was inspiration, that that was revelation, that was something I could trust, even when the evidence around me was, was um, opposite to it. That's what faith is. So I don't think of faith as... A as just a belief. That's typically how people use the term, I would say. But faith has a, a, a specific definition, um, which is the evidence of things not seen. Mm. So there are all sorts of things. We all have faith. Every single person has faith in something. It's the causative, it's, it's why we take action. It's why we, you know, we, 
if we if we didn't believe that that uh, that, that getting onto Zencaster today would help us to communicate, we wouldn't do it. It's like you you have faith in a in something in the future and therefore can take action. That's what that moment was for me. Is it created an assurance, a sort of confidence, and I had to try and hold on to. Um, last question, if you're okay on time. Of course. Um, yes. So <clears throat> this podcast and no time to waste. It's it's not about it's not about death and dying, despite mm. my stupid terminal cancer diagnosis. <laughs> um, it's about living, you know, and it's about yes. living our best lives. And it's about not waiting to start that best life. It's about, yes. it's about looking at, you know, life in, in 24 hour increments like I do now. And mm -hmm. essentially, you know, recognizing that none of us know how much time we have left. That's right. Um, crafting a life without regrets and then maximizing moments focused on what I think matters most gratitude, human connection and joy. Um, mm. and I like to ask people, um, how do you live? Like there's no time to waste. What's that 24 hour day look like the things that involve, you know, the gratitude and the connection with people that you care about and the joy. What are the things that, that make you feel, alive i had this eureka really the obvious eureka but it was that um that the most important people in my life weren't a little more important they were vastly more important than just everybody and that was you know so my that's that's anna that's my children like these people are essential and it wasn't it wasn't like well you've got work that's quite important and then you've got the family and that's quite important it was like ah oh, these are vastly different that was the first part of the Eureka. And the second was how pathetically short life is. That however long we think we have, it's less. Or you've got to orient your life really differently than what everybody else is doing. It, because, because they're making the same simple error that, that I have often made, that they were thinking, well, you know, these things are all approximately equal. We've got a long time left. If you believe those two things, you'll make a very different set of decisions and trade-offs. When you start to realize it is crazy short and you don't know how long there is left and a few things matter and most stuff is noise, then you can start designing an essential life, an essentialist life. I mean, that's, that to me is, 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 is the name of the game. I, I keep a journal pretty religiously now. I, I, th I don't think I've missed a day in about 10 and a half years now. And I started rereading some old journals a while ago. And most of the entries just were like so unimportant. They just didn't, I didn't care about most of it. It's just like, uh, yeah, 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 whatever. And then I came across an entry where I had written about a game I had played with my youngest daughter, who was very young at the time. And, and just a game, it, it, we were in her room and we were playing and I was laughing with her and, and it was just a short paragraph, but it's jumped off the page as being so important. And so it's like the ordinary moments really are the extraordinary things. So to me, to me, when you put all of this together, it means, it means really 
coming back again and again to what's important now. Mm-hmm. To keep asking that question that has a nice little acronym to win, W-I-N, win. What's important yeah. now? And 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 to to spend, try to be as present as possible mm-hmm. with the most important people in your life. Yeah. This is the moment you have. Yeah. You don't know how long, how many more of them you'll have. So... It's playing, it's going for walks with, with Anna, it's it's going and wrestling with the kids in the pool still. That's a bit more dangerous for me as they get bigger <laughs> and, and I get older. Um, I come out I come out pretty bad out of those now. Uh, it's it's listening mm. to them. Um, you know, trying to get out of a, of a of an efficiency mindset where I well, let me just tell you what you need to do with your life, yeah. you know, advice, orientation, and just just experiencing them now. It's the sweet simplicity, right? It's the it's the magic in the mundane. Whenever life doesn't feel that simple, you say, well, well how am I making it more complicated than it needs to be? Yep. And come back to that simplicity because, uh, you know, th- then we know then we'll know what to do next. Uh, and, and what we do next, that's that's what matters most. What'd you think of the episode? If you liked it, I would really appreciate it if you went on Apple Podcasts and left like a one-sentence review. You'd be amazed at how that can help introduce the No Time to Waste podcast to new audiences. I really appreciate it. 